Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Well, here's a joke. Uh, how many vegans does it take to screw in a light bulb? I don't know. I'm better than you. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Nuneman from APM American Public Media. This is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from actress Abigail Spencer. That'll help break the ice. Or break friendships. That's true, depending on the diet of your audience. A new season of her critically acclaimed show, Rectify, is airing now on the Sundance Channel. And we'll be speaking with the star of another acclaimed show later, Liev Schreiber, tells us about his Showtime series Ray Donovan, for which he just got an Emmy nomination. Also coming up, pop producer Mark Ronson DJs your dinner party. We learn the history of the world's most famous rabbit. Author Amelia Gray tells a summer tale. And veal loaf. Veal loaf. But first, let's start with small talk. This week, the news sounded mostly like this. NASA's New Horizons spacecraft passed by Pluto yesterday. The first sitting president to tour a federal prison. The Emmy nominations are in. Game of Thrones led the pack with a whopping 24 nominations. Now for a story that you might have missed, we are joined by Manoush Semarodi. She is the host of Note to Self, a tech podcast produced by WNYC. Manoush, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? You guys, the smartest garbage cans you have ever heard of. That doesn't sound like a very high bar. (laughs) Well, these garbage cans are so great. Not Mm. only do they have sensors that can tell you how full or smelly they are, but these garbage cans can also be Wi-Fi hotspots. What? So you can access the Internet through a garbage can? And they have been testing them out here in New York City where, you know, yes, sometimes the Internet is literally garbage. (laughs) (laughs) You don't get it's hard to get a a signal sometimes there in New York City. I understand why garbage cans. Would you why would you outfit them with Wi-Fi? It's actually the perfect thing because there's so many tall buildings here in New York City. If you come, I'm sure you'd be staring up at them. But guess what? When you have the Wi-Fi in the middle of the street, like on the sidewalk where a garbage can is it has a nice free signal oh, so the signal isn't blocked they can slap advertising on the side of these lovely garbage cans well that's what i was gonna say mm-hmm. why, why would a garbage can company want to have wi-fi like what incentive do they have it's the ads how much money can you really make with garbage why not maximize <laughs> profits by providing the information highway as well so they'll see oh this guy threw out a package of nutter butters and he google searched <laughs> Potato party. Yeah, these garbage cans are going to know everything about us. It's a little frightening. Look, you're making the garbage can sound extremely sinister. I think for now what we're talking about are connecting people. You're right, though, because the other thing that these could also potentially do, they could, like, track pedestrian traffic. They could track pollution or noise. They could do all kinds of things, which could, of course, as we know, big data can be used for good and for evil. Okay. I don't know that we'll have much of a choice. Manoush Zamarodi, thank you so much for the small talk. Oh, always a pleasure. And now, if the garbage cans let us, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history and then ask a bartender to capture its essence in the form of a cocktail. It's our patent-pending history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This coming week, back in 1940, one of the biggest stars in movie history was officially born. And he's not even real. Hmm. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. At first, Bugs Bunny was just your standard wascally wabbit. The year was 1938, and Warner Brothers released the cartoon Porky's Hare Hunt. It introduced the classic Bugs Bunny plotline, Hunter hunts rabbit, rabbit drives Hunter insane. But the rabbit didn't look or sound like today's Bugs Bunny. 
and he didn't have a name. Still, the critter kept popping up in other Warner Brothers cartoons, including one directed by a guy named Ben Hardaway. Ben's nickname? Bugs. Folks around the studio started calling the character Bugs's Bunny. Hardaway didn't direct his namesake's official debut, though. That honor went to the legendary Tex Avery. In 1940, his Warner Brothers short, A Wild Hare, featured a Bugs Bunny that finally looked like the one we know today, uttering his signature catchphrase for the first time. What's up, Doc? It was just something folks used to say in Avery's home state of Texas. Avery didn't even think it was all that funny, but audiences did. The short was a hit, and Bugs Bunny was a star. Which maybe isn't surprising, since Bugs's fast-talking attitude was based on another star, Clark Gable. Specifically, a scene in the movie It Happened One Night, in which Gable, gnawing on a carrot, tells Claudette Colbert how to hitchhike. I wish you wouldn't talk so much. I would let a car get away. Suppose nobody stops cars, huh? They'll stop, all right. It's all a matter of knowing how to hail them. And I'm going to write a book about it. Call it The Hitchhiker's Hail. Bugs may have swiped his speech patterns from Gable, but he proved himself a way harder worker. According to the 2011 Guinness Records, he's been in over 220 movies, more than any other cartoon character in film history, including that mouse with the red pants was his name. So that was the history. Now for a drink to serve with it. I am speaking with Boyan Dimitrov. He is bartender here at Dimples in Burbank, California. It is uh, in a building across the street from Warner Brothers that has been here since 1939. Boyan, what drink did that story inspire you to make? I'm making a drink called the Rabbit Ears after Bugs Bunny. Of course. What? Uh, d- by the way, do, do any like animators from Warner Brothers come in here? Yeah, they come in here from Warner Brothers and from all around the studios around here. And they, but they, the funny part about them is they can't stop drawing. So they come in here and they start chatting. Next thing they're like, "Well, let me draw you this picture because it's so like cool to have a picture from these animators." You amazing. must have like the best cocktail napkin leftovers in Hollywood. You're absolutely right. Yes, just drawing things on napkins on like anything. All right, well, maybe this is something you can serve them. What is in the uh, the Rabbit Ears cocktail? Okay, I start off with a little bit of ice, of course. Because Bugs Bunny is cool. Vanilla vodka. Why vanilla vodka? It's just sweet and nice, you know? That's how Bugs Bunny feels on the inside. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He only ever attacks people who are trying to kill him, after all. That's right. He's a peaceful bunny. But if you get in his way, then it's all over. All right, and then? I splash a little bit of lime juice for a little citrus. Okay. And you're opening up some carrot juice. Some carrot juice. <laughs> of course. Right now it's looking nice and orange. And you top it off with a little bit of apple pucker. Elmer Foote always eats apples and Bugs Bunny eats carrots, so. I never noticed that Elmer Sometimes eats apples. His head kind of looks like an apple too, so that's perfect. There you go, yes. All right, uh, I'm going to take a sip of this thing. Oh, that's kind of cool. I expected it to be a little more vegetable-y, but it's actually like a pleasantly sweet, mildly sweet. Yeah. Almost too mild for Bugs Bunny. I think to like really make it Warner Brothers, you should toss in like a cherry bomb or something. Just a big explosive ending. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> 
And folks, a sad note, we taped that interview some time ago, and earlier this year, Dimples closed. Alas. One of the iconic karaoke bars in L.A., 30-plus years in business. That's right. Sorry. But it's going to be replaced by Whole Foods. Surprise. Uh, <laughs> so at least the carrot juice will be better. Probably. Yeah. Meanwhile, Dimples' legacy lives on on our website, where you can find the recipe for the rabbit ears. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. All right, we've taken a big gulp of history, angered our robot overlords. Uh Now it's time for the real animator of any dinner party, the music. And here with song suggestions is producer slash musician slash DJ Mark Ronson. Mm. It's a lot of slashes. His single Uptown Funk spent 14 weeks at number one this year, the second longest chart reign in Billboard history. He's now touring Europe. Here's Mark to DJ your next get-together. Hi, I'm Mark Ronson, and this is my dinner party soundtrack. My first song that I've picked for you is a song called Witchy Tai To by a band called Harper's Bazaar. They were, I think, late 60s, slightly psychedelic California group. I think this was probably their only big song. I only heard it for the first time about two, three years ago, and I was like, how have I not heard this my entire life? It has all these bike bells ringing, and it's so warm, but it sort of washes over you. You can engage in it if you want, but at the same time, it's not going to pull you out of some amazing conversation with the person to your left. I think if you listen to it, it's hard not to think that like Eno and you two didn't maybe listen to it a few times before they cut with or without you. So for my next song, I've picked Steve Spacek. It's called Dollar. It's just a really short, odd two to three bar sample of this old Billy Paul song, Let the Dollar Circulate. And this guy's really singing this kind of beautiful Curtis Mayfield type falsetto over it. It's super hypnotic, but yep, you could hear it for three minutes and never get tired of it. It's really clever and engaging if you want it to be, but yet it can still, you know, without maybe being too distracting, just like envelop the room. I remember the first time I heard the song of a good friend, this DJ in New York named Blue Jams. DJing it was some party in this weird hipster art gallery thing in New York and he played it. And I remember I hadn't DJed in a while and everyone went crazy when the song came on and it made me feel kind of old. I was like, oh man, I'm like that guy now that doesn't know the new things that have come out. For my next song, I'm gonna pick a song called Listening Man by The Bees. Tell me something away from trouble and away from doubting. 
the beads of this band from the Isle of Wight that spookily just sound like this combination of like early 70s whalers recording with some kind of thing like a bit more like the band. I'm a little bit obsessed with things that sound a bit older, you know, and uh, as you're going through the dinner party, you want music that people are going to go like, wow, what's this? I've never heard it before. If I had to choose a song of my own, like, gun to my head, I mean, I'd have to choose Uptown Funk. There's that moment where you have to, like, delineate, all right, dinner's over, and then you just have to play that one song that lets everybody know, like, oh, it's dancing time. This is that ice cold Michelle fight for that white gold. This one for them hood girls, them good girls, straight masterpieces. Styling, wilding, living it up in the city. Got Chuck's on with Saint Laurent, gotta kiss myself, I'm so pretty. I'm too hot. A dinner party soundtrack courtesy of pop music producer Mark Ronson. He's currently on tour in Europe. And our apologies to Brian Eno and you too if we just got them embroiled in a lawsuit. It's an amazing <laughs> coincidence, that yeah. song. All right, everyone, coming up, we chat with Ray Donovan star Liev Schreiber. Author Amelia Gray tells us a tale. And we learn the difference between Austrian and German cuisine. At last, Yay. when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I am Brendan Francis Noonan. I am Rico Galliano. Later, we chat with Oscar-nominated documentarian Joshua Oppenheimer about his new film, The Look of Silence. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right. And it's actor Liev Schreiber. This week, he earned an Emmy nomination for his starring role in the Showtime series Ray Donovan, which just launched its third season. He's also starred on Broadway and in blockbuster films like the Scream Horror Trilogy and X-Men Origins Wolverine. We're going to listen to a chat I had with him back when Ray Donovan debuted in 2013. Liev plays the show's title character, a South Boston native who lives in L.A. and does illegal dirty work for a high-end law firm. Mm. Ray's life gets upended when his dad, Mickey, played by a great John Voight, gets released early from prison. In this clip, Mickey visits Ray and his brothers for the first time since his release. This is great. All my boys are together. Everyone's great. Everyone's great, Mick. Really? Bridge is dead. Terry's shaking like a Leaf and Bunchy can't stay sober more than a month. That's your legacy, Mick. Hey, Hollywood big shot. I want to date Cheetah Rivera, Rita Moreno, or Diane Carroll. Glad that don't take me back. Can you hook me up? And Liev, this show has two major storylines. In one, your character zooms around L.A. and helps the rich and famous make their problems disappear. And in the other storyline, there's Ray's turbulent family life. From an acting standpoint, which one of those stories do you prefer? Which is more fun to play? The family stuff is a lot more fun. But it's not very interesting why it's fun. <laughs> it's fun because I like those actors. Oh, okay. And I like working with those actors. The real heart of the thing for me is the ensemble, is, is this in really, really stellar group of actors. And they are play my family, so I only get to work with them in the family scenes. Although I do enjoy swinging a bat at a stuntman every now and again. That's, this and you get to drive a really vicious-looking Mercedes. I hate that car. You do? I really hate that what, car. Do you think it's not the right car pairing for Ray? I just think that's that just a ridiculous little car. <laughs> it's too small. 
I hope Mercedes isn't listening because I'm sure somebody made some sort of deal with them to <laughs> yeah. get that car on oh, the yeah. show. So I heard you talking about Ray Donovan on <clears throat> another public radio show, yeah. Fresh Air. Mm. I used to work there, actually. Yeah. Oh, uh, right. oh, yeah, yeah. What Terry. happened? Well, I wanted to be Terry. Oh, yeah. yeah. She, Terry so, doesn't take kindly to uh, that. Well, and also, you know, she's not going anywhere. Yeah. She has her compatriot Dave Davies to help her. And in fact, you were talking to him about your show and specifically, you were telling him what it's like being on a serial television show. This is the first series you've starred in. And you said, quote, the interesting thing about doing serial television is that the character is growing separate from you. Yeah. And as an actor, you get to observe that. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little more? Well, you know, I never wanted to do a television show. And I guess when I first got into acting, to be honest, I was cruising. I was like, wow, this is really easy and Mm. they pay you and it's kind (laughs) of a great lifestyle. And the best part was that there was such variety that you got to do something different all the time. And then, you know, if you're lucky enough to get into the movie business, they really pay you. And they take you places, like places you probably would never get a chance to go. And they teach you things like how to play hockey or you know, uh, how to speak another language. It's like and summer camp. You're getting paid fantastic. a lot of money. Yeah. And I thought, wow, this really is the life for me because I'm someone who's always been drawn to change, constant change. And so for that reason, I thought, I'm never going to do a television show because I couldn't imagine doing the same thing over and over again. What I discovered once I started doing a couple of episodes was this thing that you're not doing the same thing all of the time. And... What's fascinating about it from an acting perspective is that the thing grows and changes separately from you. For instance, there are a lot of other people collaborating on this thing, writers, directors, editors, other actors, and the character is developing in a way that you can almost watch it grow Hmm. and then sort of meet it at this next new place and take it to another. It's like you're all contributing something to it, but no one's really in control of it. Yeah. And that's very exciting. No one person is in control of it. That's that's an exciting way to work. We have two standard questions we ask mm-hmm. on our show. And the first question is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? That one. Really? I'm so sick what? of being asked, what, what? question no way. am I tired of being asked in interviews? I've no, you've been asked this question? really? They ask me a lot the same question. You know, it's a question that I'm kind of tired of. I'm kind of tired of the question about what's the difference between theater and film. Yeah. That one's annoying. That's why I didn't ask it. Yeah. I know the answer. Do you want to ask me? What's the difference between theater and film? Well, theater is an actor's medium. Uh With theater, the actor is in control of the performance. Uh But with movies, the director and the editor ultimately control what's on screen. Who told you that? That was uh, Joseph (laughs) Gordon-Levitt. I think I've given that answer. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems true. Yeah, it's not the best answer, but no. I've given that answer. Well, we have another question, a request, actually. Yeah. Tell us something we don't know. It can either be a personal fact about you or an interesting piece of trivia. Well, my senior thesis, basically, at Hampshire College, okay. undergraduate, was on the uh, subject of canid vocalizations, which Can- is a fancy way of saying dog barking. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, Basically, I had to go out in different costumes in front of a kennel of dogs. Are you being, this is how This is serious. I did this. <laughs> I went, I had a clown costume. I uh, went in a dress. I went dressed all in black. I went dressed normally. This does sound like Hampshire College. Yeah, and we were trying to see <laughs> the frequency of the barks and what it meant. And as they got to know me, how they would change and which breeds would change more. There were more feral dogs. And wow. there, were, there were these dogs 
called F12 hybrids. And that's this. Here's the interesting thing. My senior project was not that interesting. I'll admit that now. Mm. Uh, two interesting facts. One is I wanted to be an animal behaviorist. Yeah. And two, my teacher developed this dog that was called, I think, an F12 hybrid. All right. What's so fascinating, if you know anything about working dogs, cattle dogs, there are two kinds of dogs. There's a UCD and a UPD. Okay. One's a conducting dog and one's a protecting dog. All right. Conducting dogs are like border collies, which are essentially hunting the sheep. I stalk behavior, in the, and that's basically what conducting dogs are. Protecting dogs are big dogs like maremmas and sheep dogs that actually protect the animals as if they're part of the herd. Gotcha. And Ray's project was to develop a hybrid that could do both. This is amazing. And would revolutionize the cattle industry. This is the F12. The F12 hybrid. <laughs> I have one last question. Mm-hmm. Preparing for this interview, I found out you had a son named Kai. Uh-huh. And so my our sister program is Marketplace. Kai Rizdal. Kai Rizdal, yeah. I know Kai Rizdal. Any, any, all right. I mean, I don't know Kai yeah, Rizdal, yeah, but, but I know I listen to Kai Rizdal. So and did you, that inspire the name? Or Absolutely no? not. Okay. No. Because right. I was going to say Brendan, not a bad name. If you, Brendan's a nice name. Yeah, if you have another kid, you might want to. It's Better nice, than Terry. I wouldn't name my kid Brendan, but it's a nice, <laughs> it's a beautiful name. And Rico, since that interview, yeah. Liev had a pair of twins, and he named them Peter Sagal and Lakshmi Singh. <laughs> That's a lie. It is. Uh, but Lakshmi Singh Schreiber does it has a ring to it. <laughs> yeah, it does. Folks. Rolls off the tongue. New episodes of Ray Donovan air Sundays at 9 on Showtime. And now, time to eavesdrop. In her new book, Gutshot, writer Amelia Gray doesn't mince words. This collection of very short stories has earned praise for Gray's darkly funny, unflinching voice. This weekend, she's a featured author at the Pitchfork Music Festival. Today, we overhear her tell a tale. Hi, my name is Amelia Gray. A lot of my stories are about the body. They're very visceral. And this story is called Blood. The narrator is a woman looking back on her youth, and in particular, a summer when she was kind of following around her older brother and his boyfriend. So I wanted to really give a sense of summertime. It's a fun time. It's an innocent time, but it's also really a fleeting time. And even as a young child, you get a sense of that. Here's the story. Your boyfriend's dad taught us how to kill a mosquito with our minds and our muscle. All you needed to do, your boyfriend's dad explained, was flex your muscle, and some mechanism would lock the insect there to expand and explode. He was a contractor with a company that worked on houses in the neighborhood. He said, all we've got is our minds and our muscle, and so we ought to know how to use them. He would jab at your muscle and say, isn't that right, Joshua? and you would laugh and rub your ear and agree that he was right. The neighborhood was the type where all the houses went up at once, so fast that they were all surely made with wood from the same trees, sheetrock from the same stone. You let me tag along with you and your boyfriend, and sometimes he gave me ten dollars to get us some cheeseburgers. We tried the thing with the mosquitoes for months, avoiding the sprays and creams that might ward them off. We were pocked with welts that stung under tanning oil. 
I remember running across unfinished rooftops, jumping from house to house, but that wasn't right. It was your boyfriend's dad who did that, and only once, striding a gap onto a garage extension to avoid climbing down and climbing back up. He was strong and cocksure and seemed fairly confident in his own immortality. I'm still attracted to any man who can whistle. Your boyfriend was all right. He played the violin. The three of us were lying on a roof once, and he said that after death, your consciousness snaps out, and that's all. I thought he'd been asleep. You said that when you died, you wanted your ashes cast into marbles and distributed to your family. I would get the one that looked most like a galaxy, and your boyfriend would get the second. You said that if anyone died, it wouldn't be one of us. We climbed down and looked at the beams where one of the workers had drawn maybe 1,000 separate pairs of breasts. I was reading a book in school about a girl who folded hundreds of paper cranes, and so this made sense. The idea that everything was fine laid the delicate foundation of my life. You figured out the mosquito trick right at the end of the summer, before you went to high school and I stayed with the little kids. It was the sweet spot of August and almost my birthday. We were sitting in a half-finished house at the time, drawing in the wood dust on the concrete, when you called my name and I saw it was stuck in your arm, at the prime point of your bicep, placid and feeding, swelling like a tick. Once it burst, we shouted with joy. We spread its mess around with our fingers, Afterward, I would wonder why the mosquito didn't push against your skin, why it didn't strain to free itself, if it maybe knew how special you were. Amelia Gray reading the story Blood from her new fiction collection Gutshot. It's been edited for time, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we explore what's happening in the world of food, a.k.a. we eat for free. That's right. Enrico, <laughs> this week I sampled some Austrian food. All right, so sausages. Yes. A lot of that. Sausages and other tasty things. But I didn't eat them at a restaurant. I ate them at an imbis. Okay, which is? Exactly. What is an imbis? Good question. That is precisely the question I posed to Austrian chef Bernhard Meringer when I met him at his brand new eatery in downtown Los Angeles, Bierbiesel Imbiss. Uh, an imbiss is usually, like, if you will go to Austria and you ask for an imbiss, you will be shocked what he's sending you. It's just, you know, like a window somewhere on a train station, or it's a little stand in the middle of nowhere. It is, you know, a little shack almost that just serves a handful of dishes, but those usually are from local butchers and, you know, high quality with some good bread and rolls and then a couple canned beers and some sodas, and, and that's pretty much it. Did you grow up with uh, Nimbus's nearby? Is there one you had in mind when you were thinking about your restaurant? Oh, definitely. I mean, it's something, you know, it, we would back then, my dad would take us to a soccer game in Salzburg, which is 30 minutes away, and, you know, my favorite soccer club is there. So we would basically end up in the Getreidegasse, which is like the Rodeo Drive of Salzburg. 
you know, it's all posh. Like even McDonald's has like a gold M hanging outside. It's like yeah. really weird. And so you all of a sudden around lunchtime, you see like a big line coming out and ending in the middle of nowhere, just a little side alley. And then you see one of those windows and all they do is the Bosna, which is sort of like a very crisp and light uh, white roll. And then it's just ketchup, mustard, uh, you have a sausage, and then uh, it has uh, raw shaved onions on top and a little bit of curry powder. And so just all the flavors together is incredible. So even in this fancy place, they want to get this kind of curry sausage at a local imbus. Correct. It doesn't matter. Anybody coming out of the Prada store or eating, you know, two Michelin star just, you know, five minutes from there is still having sandwiches like that, and I love it. All right, well, let's turn to some of the food here. So tell me what we have we're looking at. So this is the Bosna here. As I said, you see it's a very light and, and fluffy white bun. Uh, it's, you know, 100% wheat, but it's organic wheat. It's very light, and it's just to accommodate whatever flavors you'll find in the sausage. And then you realize, you know, that little bit of bread with the ketchup and the mustard and then the onions giving it that spice and then finishing sort of with that complex curry taste. It's it's awesome. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna try it. Hold on. Mmm. There's a nice snap on the sausage link. What's the next thing you're gonna share with me? It's the veal loaf. So a veal loaf. Explain what this is. It's very similar to when so when they make the farce for some of the sausages. Farce meaning the the brats, the stuffing of the sausage. Okay, that's like the meat, the ground up meat and its spices right. and breading. Yeah. And so what this is is basically just baked farce. Oh, so instead of putting it inside a casing, you're just baking it on its own? Yes, correct. Are there olives in here? Or is this is the spicy one. So we add uh, jalapeno, we add Thai chili, and we add bell peppers. We actually just take the veal loaf farce from the butcher, and then we finish it here. So that's a little California influence. Though. Exactly. Because there's probably not a lot of Thai peppers hanging around veal loaf in Salzburg. No. And the bun is? Uh, it's a semel. So semel is it's like the classic, it's like almost like a little Kaiser roll. Exactly, it's like an Austrian Kaiser roll that's very popular, and every Austrian you'll meet in in, in LA will be like, finally there's a semel in Austria. All right, let me take a bite here. I like that a lot. Just eat those with those pepperoncini peppers. They have pepperoncinis in Austria. Yeah. Wow. And then we basically serve three different versions. We serve one that's infused with Swiss cheese because, you know, everything infused with cheese tastes good. Yeah. And then we serve the plain, which is just straight veal loaf. Why do Austrians love meat so much? Because it's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess they were just really good at raising cattle and stuff? Yeah, I mean, you know. The, 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 you're, you're a landlocked country. The, the, the quality, exactly. Our agriculture is one of the things we're very proud of. Is there a difference between Austrian and German cuisine? Oh, hell yeah. What, you said that quick. All right, so what are, what are some of the differences? Um, I don't, I don't want to offend anyone, but I always say, uh, you know, Austrian cuisine is like German cuisine, just not boring. What do you mean by that? Um, no, we definitely, you know, having been such a big empire back then, your Habsburg Empire, uh, and then conquered by the Turks, you know, we've, we've been through a bit. So all those little adventures and, and incidents back in history left us a piece you know when the turks came we got the coffee uh, and that was vienna so they conquered vienna and then you know with eastern european countries when you know the part of croatia and poland and like slovenia and hungary all connected we got all that influence from them which also means you know spices like the curry spices like you know paprika spices like cinnamon and all that stuff which you won't find in austria but are uh, you know definitely part of your food culture yeah so it's funny when everybody's always like, well, Austrian cuisine, you guys only have, like, cabbage and meat. I'm like, we have anything and everything. 
because there's no restriction. Because you once ruled a big part of the world and you were overrun by some of it. Rule it again. <laughs> Bernhard Meringer, his new L.A. restaurant is called Beer Beasel Imbiss. And Rico, just to address the small elephant in the room, I did ask him about Vienna sausages. Uh-huh. They are not, in fact, Viennese. Mm. And, and those devil's food cake rolls with cream in the middle? <laughs> Yodels? Also not Austrian. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. Austria's <laughs> not to blame. Folks, coming up, Joshua Oppenheimer talks about his powerful new documentary, The Look of Silence, when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll hear a brand new tune from Thundercat. And coming up, director Joshua Oppenheimer talks about The Look of Silence, a companion piece to his Oscar-nominated documentary, The Act of Killing. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week our inboxes overflow with questions from you, our audience, about how to behave in polite company. Sometimes we recruit a celebrity to help answer those queries, and sometimes we bring in the big guns. That's right. Our resident etiquette experts, Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning. They're the great-great-grandkids of etiquette sensei Emily Post, co-authors of Emily Post. Post Etiquette, the 18th edition, and they co-host the podcast, Awesome Etiquette. Lizzie, Dan, welcome back. Thank you. The karate kids of etiquette. I know. That's right. How are things at the most polite place on earth, the Post Institute? Oh, they're so rude. Simply but- divine. <laughs> oh, we have some disagreements. Some mixed messages. I always wonder, do you guys have like a room that you can go to when you just want to curse Get mad. angrily? Yeah. It's called my office. <laughs> I'm over it. I'm over being polite. Um, all right. We have a bunch of questions this week, so let's just get into them. This first one comes from Jen in Australia, and Jen writes, My manager, who sits next to me at work, often falls asleep at his desk. Hmm. I know he has two young kids, as well as side businesses he works on outside of work hours, so it's no surprise he's tired. I just really don't like that he falls asleep all the time, (laughs) and I think being so tired affects the quality of the work he does. Should I say something to a superior? Is it tattling? I'd like a nap at my desk, too, but I'd consider that poor form. Mm, so it's jealousy and it's performance. a lot going on there, yes. I think it's it's hard to tattle on your boss. Really hard. And I think it is tattling if you're not talking to that person first. If this is a coworker who sits right next to you, before I escalated the situation, I would probably try to talk to them about it. Well, actually, I should note, we did, for brevity's sake, we did cut one sentence out of Jen's question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where she did say that there has been occasions where her coworker has noticed Jen catching him falling asleep, and he just gives her a bunch of excuses about it. So it sounds like he's aware that this is happening and that it's not good if he's making excuses for it. If it wasn't her supervisor, I would say talk to a manager, but because it's her supervisor, it's up to his supervisor to catch it happening. I just don't think it's her job to to do... When does this reach whistleblower level? Yeah, Yeah, it's true. If the compromising of the work starts to reflect back on her to the point where, where some of the blame for the problems is really landing on her... I think that's the time to have that discussion. Because right now, really, it's just she's annoyed and jealous a little bit. It sounds like she's not really being adversely affected otherwise. But it's, so is your, are you suggesting that she shouldn't report something because it's her superior because she'll get in trouble or because one just respects a hierarchy and it's not her place? Mm-hmm. 
number a, two. Yeah, it's a, it's pr- it's pretty much because of the hierarchy thing. Okay, right. yeah. I mean, I Brendan, need... no likey that answer. What do you? Yeah, well, what do you guys think? Well, and if this was a government, that would be there would, at some point you'd have a revolution and say this hierarchy isn't working correctly. Yes, exactly. And we're saying that that might have There's to happen a... at some point yep. for sure. When the when the hierarchy starts to fail the organization and the the, the structure stops delivering the results mm. or the, yeah. the work product that really ultimately people are being judged on. All right, so Lizzie and Dan will let them eat cake, and Rico and I will be at the barricade. That's right, sharpening <laughs> up our pitchforks. Here's I like something, cake. <laughs> here's something from Todd in Newport, Rhode Island. Todd writes, I think I might break up with my girlfriend, but we share a house, and I don't want to move out. Whoa. <laughs> I also want to remain friends. Hmm. What is the best way to break up, not move out, and stay friends? This oh, is... boy, you're going to solve a lot of... <laughs> That's right. This is the question. <laughs> yeah, this is or one of yeah, the good, questions. I was going to say, like, good luck with that, Todd. <laughs> I think... Uh, man, that is so personal to why you're breaking up and how the other person feels about the breakup. There are certainly amicable breakups that happen, but... It's a lot of things to I mean, want let's, out let's, of a negative yeah. situation. Let's parse this yeah. question. I think I might break up with my... You should break up with your girlfriend. If you're thinking about it, it's probably going to It's happen. over, Todd. Yeah. Um, but we share it, a house yeah. and I don't want to move out. He's not bringing up with her because he doesn't want to move out. You're an adult. Find another place. Wow, I there, thought you were going to use a different A word, but that's okay. There are sometimes legitimate counterweights. I mean, as, as relationships build and grow oh, over time. Oh, but I love my apartment. Well, but he may not be able to afford to move out. She may not have the money to stay in the house without him, and he doesn't want to leave her in the lurch. That doesn't sound like what's happening. It sounds like he just doesn't want to move out. <laughs> He's but... like, I don't want to. Okay. But we're trying to give our listeners some latitude here. And, and your highest likelihood of staying friends is if you're honest and just proceed, rip the Band-Aid off. Now you're getting to the heart of the good advice, which is that for in order for any um, decent outcome to be possible, you do have to handle the situation with some care and some mm. respect and some thought for the other person's feelings. So you prep the difficult conversation. You ask them for a private time and place to have the discussion. You maybe give them just enough information so they can prep a little bit. In a private place, you're saying you don't break up in, a, in a, say, a coffee shop or something. Right. Not, a, not at a party. Yeah, absorb <laughs> the info yeah. with some time and space to, to absorb it privately, yeah. But All maybe right. not at the house you want to remain in because it'll have bad juju. So <laughs> yes. look out for that, Todd. All right. Well, good luck, Todd. We're sorry for the tough love at the top there. There you go. Seriously. <laughs> All right. This next question comes from Anonymous in San Antonio, Texas. Anonymous writes, let's say there's a dinner party for a group of reunited college pals, now 60-somethings. What do you do when one of the guests brings his offspring and his offspring demands to sit at the table with us big boys? Also... The offspring is in his 40s. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I just like, I think it's funny that they're trying not to let him sit at yeah, the table to be going. So we're all going to go out to dinner. You get that single table over there. Yeah. Does that, what, is he sitting That's with, so with children? Cool. Is he sitting alone? What, what is the other option here? I think he's 40. He's an adult. I uh, mean, he sits at the table with them. Come on. But I think what, and not the question here, and that's funny. That's why Anonymous threw in that little 40s thing. But the question is, if you have an old crew of friends, this is a, a dinner party for reunited college pals. It sounds like a special event. How do you tell someone who might be very close to you, like, hey, I just want to hang out with the gals or the guys ahead think, of time? Yeah, mm-hmm. this is an ahead of time thing. The, the problem is, is when this happens and you're dealing with it, I don't think you can tell that that one offspring, that kid who's 40, to go sit at a separate table. Go get a Shirley Temple. Here's $10. Yeah, essentially said member of the group has blown it, you know. And now you have to deal with it. Now you have to deal with it. And, and, you know, maybe it's that time where you embrace it and this is where you let him in on all the jokes from college and that kind of stuff and it's a fun bond. 
bonding moment. And I think you do have permission if this guy really brought his offspring kind of uh, against the rules to treat that 40-something jokingly as though he were eight. Make him wear a bib, <laughs> feed him things, make Doesn't airplane noises as you put mashed potatoes <laughs> into his mouth yeah. and stuff. Or just tell really embarrassing stories about that. <laughs> Offspring's father or mother. That's, I'm with like man. I am right on that plan. Yeah, you make you make the Punishment person that made the faux due, pas. Yeah. yeah, you make them pay for it. No, little totally. man. I'm glad you're here. Exactly. There's a few stories yeah. we need to tell. That's exactly. <laughs> Lizzie Post and Daniel Post sending. Thank you so much for telling our audience once again how to behave. Thank Gentlemen, you so much pleasure. for having us. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post sending. They are the co-authors of Emily Post Etiquette 18th edition. They also have a podcast of their own fittingly called Awesome Etiquette. It's part of the Infinite Guest Podcast Network, just like this very show. And people, if you have a question for the posts or for one of our celebrity etiquette expert pinch hitters, mm. send it via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. We will politely forward it along. Last year, we spoke with documentarian Joshua Oppenheimer about his astonishing Oscar-nominated documentary, The Act of Killing. It takes place in Indonesia, where in the 60s, the military regime labeled hundreds of thousands of citizens communists and enlisted civilian death squads to murder them en masse. Many death squad members are now in positions of political power in Indonesia, and in The Act of Killing, Oppenheimer convinced them to reenact their atrocities, which they did with a stunning mixture of pride and deep psychological denial. Joshua has now followed that up with a companion documentary called The Look of Silence. It hits theaters this weekend. And Joshua, honored to have you back. It's great to be back. Thank you. This film also deals with the mass murders in Indonesia. For those who haven't seen it, most people, tell us how is this different from the first one? Well, in, in The Look of Silence, we follow survivors who confront perpetrators who remain in power. That's never been done because it's too dangerous. Here we have mm. the main character of the film, Adi Rukun, meeting the man who killed his older brother, who was killed before he was born, a brother he never met, mm. uh, and, and asking, while testing their eyes, he's an optometrist, he's asking them to take responsibility for what they've done and then confronting them about, about what it really means and what it's meant for his family. So in the first film, the killers kind of tell their own story. In this one, one of their victims confronts them. As you say, this is a very dangerous task Adi undertakes. Tell me about him. Why, why did he rise to do this? How did he have the courage to do it? I mean, you told me the last time that you tried to interview survivors of the killings in the last film. And when the government found out, they forbade them from doing it. What, how was Adi able to do this? Well, actually, it was Adi and his family that I was working with back in 2003 when, this, when the army threatened all of the survivors not to participate in the film. And it was Adi who most in, in, insistently said, I need to meet the men who killed my brother. I need to confront them. I immediately said, absolutely not. It's too dangerous. Well, I, I had given Adi a camera. It's kind of a visual notebook that I'd given him. And when I told him, no, we could not do this, he said, let me explain why it's so important to me. And he went and he got that camera and he got one tape and pressed play and immediately started to cry. It's a scene where his father was crawling through the house lost, calling for help. Yeah, the, at the end of this film, that, that scene appears. Right? Comes at the, end of the, at the end of the look of silence. It's the only scene in the movie Adi shot. His father's lost, calling for help in his own house. A man 
at 103 years old, according to his ID card. Yes, he's very old. He's clearly suffering from dementia. He doesn't really know where he is anymore. And he, Adi said to me, this was the first day my father could not remember me, my brothers and sisters, my mother. This is the moment it becomes too late for my father to heal. He has forgotten the son whose murder has destroyed his life, his family's life, but he has not forgotten the fear. Mm. We watched the scene play out in silence, and then he said to me, Joshua, I don't want my children to inherit this prison of fear from my father, my wow. mother, and from me. And I think if I go to the perpetrators with an openness, and not seeking revenge, not out of anger, they will greet this as this opportunity to first of all make peace with some of their neighbors, and above all, to be a po- uh, forgiven by one of their victims' families. Well, let me let me ask you about some of those people that he talks to, though. They they don't seem like they all greet him with open arms as a chance to, you know, finally express regret or to revisit their past. A lot of them, in fact, in one way or another, say that he's opening wounds that shouldn't be reopened. And it's not just them. Adi's wife worries for his safety for doing this. A man who's escaped being killed more or less says there's no point in dwelling on this stuff. You have to move on. No good can come of it. What's your response to that? Well, again and again in the film, we hear people say, let the past be past. And the survivors always say it out of fear. And the perpetrators always say it as a threat, indicating that the past isn't past. The wound isn't closed. It's right there. It's empowering the perpetrators to threaten people, and it's keeping the survivors afraid. And if it's not addressed, there will be no uh, way of moving beyond the fear. Is Adi safe? Do you think after this movie comes out? I mean, in some of these scenes, the perpetrators seem caught off guard that they're suddenly being questioned about the killings. I'm surprised that some of them didn't confiscate the footage as soon as you were done shooting. Well, this is just it. After Adi explained to me why he wanted to do this, I then said, let me think about it. And I I went back and talked to my Indonesian crew, and we realized that I was well known across that region for having made a film, The Act of Killing, with the most, some of the most powerful men in the country. And... Because the act of killing had not yet come out, people still believed I was close to these men. Oh, like you, they were your buddies or something? Well, once the act of killing came out, the most powerful men in the film, of course, now hate me, and it's their henchmen who send, who send me regular death threats. But at this point, the act of killing hadn't come out, so people thought you were still somehow connected with them. That's right. And the men Adi wants to confront, the men who've killed his brother, are regionally powerful, some of them, but not nationally powerful. And they will not dare to detain us even, let alone physically attack us, because they won't want to offend their (laughs) highest-ranking commanders. Mm -hmm. And so that was the the strange condition that allowed us to do this safely. In the end, eight months before the film had its world premiere at the Venice Film Festival, we came together me, my crew, uh, Adi's family in Thailand to, to look at a rough cut of the film and discuss whether we should release the film or not, whether we should wait until the perpetrators have passed away or, or there's been real political change in Indonesia. The family saw the film and said the film should come out now. We're willing to move to Europe if necessary. <laughs> wow. And the, the team involved with releasing the film said it should be possible if the reaction is as positive as we think it will be for Adi and his family to stay in Indonesia, provided they're willing to move to another part of the country, out from under the shadow of the men in the film, the men who've been intimidating the family for so long. They're kind of local leaders. The local leaders. It should be possible for them to uh, stay in Indonesia and 
for Adi to play the very central role that actually he now is playing, he's seen by many in Indonesia now as a kind of national hero by the public and by much of the media. Actually, that leads me to, uh, I think, a good end to this interview. You told me last time that making the act of killing gave you nightmares because it forced you to empathize with murderers. Did maybe this film help you sleep better? Yeah, that's a beautiful way of putting it. (laughs) Making the act of killing, um, people will always ask, weren't you afraid making it? And I'm sure they mean, wasn't it dangerous because you were filming with powerful people who've done terrible things? It wasn't physically frightening to make because the government was rolling out a red carpet for everything we did. When we were confronting the perpetrators with the survivors, it was sometimes terrifying, but mm. it was emotionally healing. I, It was a wonderful way to end this chapter in, in my life. It's sad for me that I cannot return to Indonesia. I, unlike Adi, who has not been threatened, I still receive regular threats. And to leave Indonesia with this family that I can love so deeply has been a great privilege and a, and a, and a great honor. Joshua Oppenheimer. His new film is called The Look of Silence. It's in select theaters now. Required viewing. And folks, that's the Dinner Party download for this week. This show would not be possible without the great work of these people. Our producer, Jackson Musker. Our associate producer, Nina Patek. Associate digital producer, Christina Lopez. This week's engineer, Ravi Carmen, And our executive producer, Peter Clowney. Special thanks this time around to Aja Pecknold. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to enjoy on your way to or returning from this week's parties. Stephen Bruner, a.k.a. the musician known as Thundercat, already made ripples this year with his appearance on Kendrick Lamar's rap masterpiece, To Pimp a Butterfly. Indeed. And his new EP, The Beyond, Where the Giants Roam, is only going to raise his profile further. Here's a track from it called Them Changes. Bon appétit. Nobody move, there's blood on the floor. And I can't find my heart. Where did it go? Did I leave it in the cold? So please give it back, because it's not yours to take. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I am... are... are you asleep again? That's so rude. All right. This is the Brendan Rules the World Show. I'm Brendan Francis. I'm up. I'm up.